recording now. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, please do introduce yourself to everyone. Your books are amazing. Uh, I'm really interested in in your, your the the one of the PayPal Mafia, uh, which is just totally fascinating to me, and I know it will be fascinating to the audience too. So please do introduce yourself. Let 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 everyone know uh, who you are and what you do. Absolutely. Well, thank you for for doing this, for reaching out, for having me. Um, my name is Jimmy Sony. I'm the author of a few books, but the one that I think connected us was The Founders, The Story of PayPal and the Entrepreneurs Who Shape Silicon Valley. And I spent, you know, in total about six years diving oh, wow. into the, <laughs> yeah, it was nuts. Uh, I, was, I, was going, I was going to ask, how did you get so much detail? Because I was uh, reading this and it's just, it's unbelievable how much detail there is. Well, you spend enough time on anything and you'll get a lot of detail, right? Um, but I spent about six years looking at, for, for background for your listeners, looking at the group of people who helped to bring PayPal to life, which includes people like Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Reid Hoffman, the founders of YouTube, the founders of, you know, so many different tech companies. And... I, I, you know, there's a lot that's known about them, but a lot of what is known about them is the stuff that they did later in life. And I mm. kind of had this intuition that there was something interesting that all these people worked at one company. So I want to go back and explore that. And so my, my study of it is called The Founders, and it looks at PayPal from the years 1998 to 2002, thereabouts. Um, and I had the fortune to interview most of the people who helped to bring the company to life, all the original co-founders, board members, et cetera. Cool. Did you did you interview Peter Thiel? I did uh, several times actually. He was great. He was very helpful to me throughout and understanding, you know, what made the company tick. Why did he do it? That sort of stuff. Yeah, because I was wondering for such a long time. Uh, I'm really interested in in business creation, and I was wondering, you know, what did Peter bring to the table? Because I knew he was a lawyer. Um, I didn't know. I, I don't think he had, he had any background in computer science or anything. Um, but then I started reading the book, and you can tell he was just ridiculously clever. Um, to the point where it was like maybe a bit absurd at times. I mean, some of the interview questions uh, we'll get onto momentarily. Uh, they were, well, they were pretty, let, it's sure. a pretty good one to start with, actually. Go ahead. It's, it's a, that's a good one to start with because people miss the contribution sometimes. And I can, yeah. I think at this point, I can answer with some precision what I think his contribution is to the PayPal story. He is, and others have written about this and spoken about it, but I mean, I just want to sort of add my two cents onto it based on my research. I, he was an unbelievable magnet for talent. Talented people joined the company and stayed because he was there. And part of what he did was he had a good nose for talent. So he knew, you know, that Max Levchin sort of had special abilities as an engineer. He hired Ken Howery. He knew to hmm. bring on Luke Nosick. He knew to bring on David Sachs. He knew he had an intuition, Rebecca Eisenberg, all these people. He would sort of interview them and then find a place for them, right? That's one thing. The second is, and this was not, again, these aren't my observations. These are what other people told me was their experience. He gave talent room to run. So he was not a micromanager. Um, very different than some other bosses. And, you know, there's sort of pros and cons. But I heard from person after person that I interviewed who was a PayPal alumnus it wasn't just that Peter brought them on. It was that he trusted them to do great work and then set ridiculously high standards for that work. Um, so I think that's a, you know, it, it's interesting that you asked the question. He wasn't an engineer, but he was an, I would say a peerless magnet for talent. He and Elon are the two people in this story where like the, I would say the, one of the actual big contributions is they just recruited, you know, incredible people to work at the company. Yeah. I think, um, like Peter is just really fascinating to me. Um, 
like what he's done after as well. And like Zero to One is a pretty amazing book uh, that really opened my mind to to so many different philosophies. He's such a contrarian, but it's very natural. Um, so I really do like him. T- tell me a bit about. Um, I was I was going to ask about Peter during the early days. Uh, I believe he was a lawyer beforehand, and I think he worked in a few in a banks uh, in, in a bank before. One one quote that I really love by Peter is uh, when he speaks about kind of. I think I think it's law firms or investment banking or something. Can he he says how um it's almost like Alcatraz or something. Uh, people on the outside are desperate uh, to get in. People on the inside are desperate to get out. And I've seen this. Um, no offense, I've studied law, uh, but I've seen this uh, at university with law specifically. Um, there's a huge, huge need and necessity for people to get in to law school. Everyone that studies law, from my experience, really dislikes it. Uh, so it's like this really weird paradox that goes on. I, I always think of this, and I tell it. To, I, I say it to my friends when when they when they say they want to become lawyers or something. Um, so so tell me about his, his early days. Did he like investment banking? Uh, did he like law school? Uh, you know, what what was the kind of uh, reasons why he left? Yeah, it it, uh, it was something I we discussed during our our interviews a bit. Um, you know, you can imagine the the bulk of my time with him was spent talking about all things PayPal. Yeah. But you know, he and he's written about this publicly. So it, it sort of my own reporting and interviewing squares mm-hmm. with other things he had written. But he, you know, he was pretty tracked professionally. He went to Stanford undergrad, then went to Stanford Law School. And, you know, my story, my version of PayPal opens actually with him being rejected for a Supreme Court clerkship. So he's sort of like ascended every meritocratic, you know, every part of the meritocratic ladder you could ascend. And then when you're at the final spot, like a law student dreams, you get an interview with a Supreme Court justice and you think you're going to get and then he doesn't get a clerkship and his life changes. And the way it changes is that he moves to California to launch a global macro investing hedge fund. And then he begins to make investments in startups because this is 1996, 97, 98, 99. The craze for all things internet has he, there's just crazy, you know, this peak. He is in, you know, he's in the backyard of Stanford. So he's in that, that area and he starts to make investments. And one of the things that happens is that he invests in this person named Max Levchin, who is the CTO and co founder of PayPal. And that is where Peter's intersection with the PayPal story starts is an investment in Max Levchin. Mm. I, I look back on like the, the inter- internet boom days with uh with with such optimism. And maybe mm. that's a slight slight naive thing to say. I mean, we've seen in recent times kind of the uh the kind of a similar event current crypto almost in which there's this huge, huge optimism for for a certain technology and then um, the majority of it turns out to be uh, a fad or, or, or not functioning properly. Um, tell, take me back to, to, to the days of, of the early internet um, before we get into it more deeply. What was it like for Peter and Elon and the guys to kind of have this vision and then ac- actually execute? Because the internet was viewed as a fad too. Um, can you take me back and kind of put me in their shoes? Yeah. It's one of the most interesting parts of researching the book was going back and like rereading the history of like the go-go 90s, right? Um, and, and of the, of the dot-com bubble, both the, both the, the, the kind of inflating of the bubble and then the bubble bursting. And that's, I would say the most important thing that I walked one of the most important things I walked away with is we have to remember that PayPal wasn't built when the internet was the, it was, it was kind of, it came into existence at the tail end of the internet Mm -hmm. explosion, right? 1998, 1999. And then in early 2000, the bubble bursts 
And like suddenly the, you know, the bottom drops out of all things.com and where it was the case that you could sort of raise money with, with an idea on a napkin, <laughs> you could now basically like get all the money dried up, but you have this company PayPal that's losing a ton of money and needs to continue to fundraise. So it's, it's an interesting thing because they're not, you know, they're not, a, they're, they're a generation after Netscape and Google and Yahoo. So there's this sort of first generation of web companies. And then there's just like everybody and their brother throws themselves in the dot-com mania. PayPal is born at the tail end of that. And then they have to survive the bust. And a lot of the book, I would actually sort of say, what, three quarters, two thirds of the book is how did PayPal survive the bust? And what's interesting is I actually think like people have asked me, like, what is, you know, sort of what, are, what are one of the takeaways, one of the takeaways is that PayPal was enormously difficult to create because you were in an environment where there was a lot of skepticism about dot coms where, you know, Barron's ran this cover story about Amazon and it was like Amazon dot bomb, right? Or whatever <laughs> it was. Um, there was a, there's a great, I found this, I did all this, what I, part of what I did was I went back and I would reread the news, like the news clips from that era. And they asked this investment manager kind of at the end of year 2000, I think it was like late 2000. They said, well, now that we've like lost 86% of the NASDAQ, you know, what would you do? And his line, which I put in the book was, I would wait around for the angel of death to gather all the corpses and then make some decisions, right? <laughs> uh, which is a really like a mate, like I thought it was such a great line. It was a great description and it was so evocative, but it speaks to this fear. You know, I, I interviewed these PayPal employees and one of the things that they would say to me is, you know, we saw the bubble burst. And so we knew all of our friends who were working in other dot-com companies and they would lose their jobs, mm. right? Or we would walk by an office and one week we're walking by it and it's bustling and there's people working on computers. And the next week the office is empty. It's like got a for rent sign in front of it and the windows are like, you know, boarded up or whatever. And so you have this situation where people are living in the like what they perceive as like the end of their industry right the end of the internet as we yeah. know it that powerfully shaped this entire generation that did paypal together um and so I, it was like think of it as like what i uh, at one point i discovered sort of like it's like what dickens was like the best of times and the worst of times you know um and 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 that's actually how they experienced it what many of the people who join paypal in 99 you know you could you could you can do no wrong. You, you raise tons of money. You can take out Super Bowl ads. You can do everything. And then by year 2000, there's no money left. And you have to do everything on a shoestring budget. They're having to travel to faraway places to fundraise. So yeah. you have a whiplash experience that I think is a big part of what defined the people who created this company. That's so cool. Um, I'm assuming you've read Zero to One, but if not, I mean, Peter Till kind of, um, he speaks of business like art uh, in a way. It's... Um, I can't really put my finger. I, I wouldn't say it's formulaic, but like I would say it's more artistic-like. Um, would you say that was replicated within the early days of Peter's business life? Because so, for someone reading that, it can be um, maybe you can you know view Peter as some sort of utter genius who who just has like this 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 four D ability to zoom out and really move the chess pieces um, succinctly. Would you say that was kind of the artistic feeling of business was replicated in, in PayPal's early days or Peter's uh, early business days? It's a great, you know, it's a great question. Um, so it's interesting because I have, I, I have read, I read zero to one when I was doing my research for the book. And then I've read it kind of after I finished up the book. Right. Um, and it's an interesting companion text, hmm. it, it, meaning 
there's so many principles or lessons that are within zero to one and PayPal turns out to be the place where some of those lessons, like you see an anecdote that expresses it, right? So let me give you one example. In zero to one, Peter meditates on the idea that competition is actually dangerous, yeah. um, that, that what you are aiming for are kind of like functioning legal monopolies instead of firms yeah. that are competing against each other for the same slice of profits, right? And there's a whole, like you could read zero to one and, you know, that's like the whole meditation on that. And if you think about the PayPal story, part of what he did in the middle of that story is duck the competition with a company created by, you know, a young man named Elon Musk by advocating for a merger between two companies. One company was called Confinity. The other was called X.com. And Confinity had a successful product called PayPal. But there was another player in that space and it was X.com. And they had a pretty good product, too. And it was Peter, more than many of the other protagonists in the story, who advocates for a merger, not a like, we're going to kill you type of competition, right? Not, mm -hmm. a, not a finish to the death, right? Um, and, and I, you know, if you, and if so, if I, so if I take, I take a step back, I'm like, well, you can learn that lesson about competition in many places, but I would bet a decent amount of money that one of the examples that Peter's thinking about, about how competition can be ruinous actually came from PayPal because it was when they were competing in a, against x.com they were losing money partly to just try to keep up with x.com and and there's a way in which it became like a, the competition became kind of ridiculous right yeah and so i i think of 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 the PayPal story as the fertile ground for a lot of the lessons that are in zero to one okay okay in, in terms of in terms of how i think about um you know the 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 interesting thing about Peter's role at PayPal is, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about talking to him now, let me actually just say this differently. I think if you were to ask, if I had interviewed him for this book, like in 2004, you know, he did not have the benefit then of having invested in so many other startups and being kind of close to so many other founders. Yeah, yeah. And when 20 years passed, you know, he was willing to be much more honest about some of the challenges that they faced at PayPal. And I remember like thinking, you know, that, that in that moment, like part of what is, I hope, good about the book is that it's not that he's some super genius that had all the answers because he absolutely mm -hmm. didn't. And I think he'd be the first to admit that. And I, I think that we actually need to like demystify startup success in that way. It's yeah. not that the team was like a team of Peters or a team of Elons. Mm. It was a true team with a lot of different kinds of personalities and people and everything. And so uh, part of what's interesting is just listening to him talk about, I'll give you an example. This is we're not speaking in abstractions. I asked him about filing to take the company public after 9-11. So, so, so September 11th, the attacks, they affect the entire country. They affect the stock market. Stock market is shut down for a bunch of days. PayPal is a privately owned venture capital funded company. There are ambitions to take it public. But after 9-11, nobody is talking about it's the first month yeah. since I think the Ford presidency where no company goes public. And Peter pushes the team to try to uh, file with the SEC to go public. There are a bunch of reasons for this. 
one of the things that he told me is he said, look, part of it was like I was competitive and we had all these Wall Street banks <laughs> who really like didn't look, they didn't think about our business in the way that I did. And I thought they were wrong and I wanted to prove them wrong. And he was even in the quote in the book and what he was describing to me, he said, look, I don't want to be this competitive, but it just creeps in and I am. And like, I'm honest about it. And, and I don't know that you could have gotten the same observation in 2004. I think you would have gotten a lot more about kind of like how long it takes to go and go public, but he's at least willing, like at this point to say like, look, I'm also just competitive and like 20%, let's say, let's say five to 20% of the decision was about competitiveness. Um, so I, I, I just would, would caution on the, like, you know, the sort of genius idea. I, I think these are very smart people. And yeah. I suspect that, you know, by some contemporary official definition of genius, a few of them are probably geniuses. <laughs> but I think the more interesting thing is, how do they make decisions at that moment, given the information they have and what that might have taught them later? And I, mm. you know, and like you can take real lessons about managing talent from Peter Thiel and like recruiting talent and finding it and knowing what to look yeah. for and knowing what not to look for. Um, I, I think that is a it, it, what, I, what I was trying to go for in the book is not just like, oh, you know, Elon Musk is very smart and everything, yeah. you know, and that's why this was successful. Actually, like it's very much the a, 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 a different story and a little bit more textured story. Okay, that's super interesting. Just a question to kind of follow on from that. Uh, and, and I think you've kind of touched on this briefly. Um, but like, I'm, I'm really interested in, in like the art of business and how businesses mm. are created. Um, and one thing that I was writing down as, as, as you were speaking there was about the network um, of Peter. And I feel like for me personally, one of the hardest challenges when I like have an idea and I want to bring it to, to fruition is, um, is, is, is knowing like a network of, of, of very competent people. Um, and Peter speaks about in, in Zero to One, the fact that uh, ideally you should, you know, in an idealistic world, you should have, um, you should found your company with someone you know, you've known for five or 10 years, someone that's a true friend in comparison to someone that you just met at, at a casino on a Friday night. Um, and the, the, reason, uh, the reason I ask this question is, is, is um, like, was Peter friends with all of these people for, for a long time? Uh, was it more of just like uh, really good networking skills, as you as you mentioned? You know, uh, it's a little it's a little from column A and a little from column B. And okay. it's interesting. It's a great question. Um, he does not have a long what he calls a prehistory. So he has this uh, and you described it a bit. He has this view that one smart thing that startup founders can think about is you may want to have prehistory or like a prior relationship yeah. with your co-founders or early employees so that you sort of know each other. Right. And I think, and by the way, the, the, the logic on that is if you have that, it actually eliminates the amount of time you need to like carefully explain everything and dance around issues. If you know somebody for a while or you're friendly or ideally friends with them, you can kind of cut to the quick. You can like move a little bit more quickly. There was a, a gentleman I interviewed who ran customer service. His name was David Wallace. Uh, early customer service. That's what he said. He said, you know, part of like what was nice was like we had such a comfort level with each other. We could just kind of move more quickly. Trust, trust, produce speed. Yeah. So that's the that's the argument in, that he makes. Now, Max Lepchin, he does not have like a five or ten year history with, but there mm. are other people like David Sachs where he does go back a long ways. Um, you know, Eric Jackson. These Stanford relationships have have pretty deep roots, but it's not everyone in the company. Max Levchin does have history with a bunch of the engineers that they hire that are very early. And so I would just say there's more, you know, it's a little bit more complex. There are some people they hire who just sort of, who just show up, right? Um, 
that that number is in the minority. But let me explain. The reason there are fewer of those kind of random hires or like random interesting people is because the company really had a hard time getting off the ground. Nobody wanted to work for PayPal. Like when it was known as Confinity and run by this unknown person, Peter, and this unknown person, Max, the place you went to work if you were a serious engineer was Google or Yahoo or, you know, <laughs> you went somewhere else. And so they had a hard time recruiting. So part of it was just by design. If you can't recruit anybody, you call your friend and you say, hey, I'm doing this thing. You know, we think it'll work out. And at that point, many people were willing to take a chance on them. As the company matured, obviously, this process became a little different. But I would argue that, you know, it's really two networks colliding. It's Max's network of University of Illinois engineers, as well as Peter's network of, of Stanford people. That's one half of the company. The other half of the company is Elon. And that's a little bit, a little wow. bit different. Those often came through recruiting firms, through his relationships. You know, he had already had a tech startup, so he recruited some of the people that he knew from there. So it's a, there's a little bit more texture to it than just okay. networks. Um, but he, but it is important to recognize, like some of the the senior most people at PayPal came through that, came through people that you know knew each other and were willing to take a chance on the idea. Okay, that, that's interesting for me to hear because, um, yeah, I think I can maybe view businesses too you know, like too much as a perfectionist when in reality, there's, there's a bit of a disorder everywhere. Oh um, God. If anything, if anything, the PayPal story, I hope gives you some yes. comfort. It's mostly disorder. You are yeah. mostly dealing with like just managing chaos and drama and difficulty. There's not a, you know, they had plans, but there were, there yeah. were seven, you know, let's see, five iterations of the product. You know, I mean, yeah. it, was, it was, if anything, what I hope that you take away is, it is about that disorder and kind of wringing some, like wringing something valuable out of the disorder, not having a perfect plan and being able yes. to execute. That, that is it. Especially when you speak about, you know, Elon, I think Elon talks about his decision-making in one part of the book in which uh, if there's two decisions, just pick one that you think is best. You'll find out if it's wrong um, or right down the road or something along those lines. Um, so that definitely kind of sings towards that theory. Um, I also wanted to, to, to touch upon um, the interview questions at PayPal, uh, they were very contrarian, I would say, um, not very conventional. Uh, they were more like mind games at the start in comparison to, uh, you know, your, your regular interview questions that you get at a normal firm. Can you maybe speak towards like, why was this the case uh, and, and what are the implications of this? Yeah, it was one of my favorite things to, to learn and to, to kind of hear from many of the people that I interviewed. Um, you know, PayPal was one of these places that, particularly if you were engineer interviewing for the engineering team, um, if you were interviewing for the engineering team, you were in a situation where you're often asked puzzle questions. And there's a kind of like quality of, hey, well, like, here's this random puzzle about two ropes burning and you want to answer it. And there are some people who respond really well to this. In fact, a lot of engineers is like what they would do for fun anyway. Um, <laughs> And there's a group of people who don't. And, you know, I would say that, like, even in, in hindsight, the alumni, some of them were like, look, we probably, like, lost out on a, some good hires because we did these crazy puzzle question things. Um, at the same time, you know, Max Levchin has this meditation in the middle of the book where he says, look, you could look at them as just sort of silly puzzle things, but they're not. Actually, they're, they're a way to test for efficient problem solving that a computer scientist should be able to do. Meaning, mm -hmm. I, it's sort of like... Like you could, he told me this one story that I don't think made it into the book or may have. He, he described this one person who like, like did a ton of calculations, filled up a whiteboard trying to answer a very easy puzzle. 
And Max yeah, didn't did. hire that person. Max didn't hire that person. He said, it's not that you, he's like, you got the right answer, but your process was so long and we don't have that kind of time, you know, at a startup, we've got to move much more quickly and we've got to like release rapid iterations of this product. And so it was for him, the puzzles were a way to test like efficiency, not just effectiveness. I would say that, you know, that one of my favorite stories was this person, Jack Selby, they toss him, he's on, he's in the business development and finance side of the business. And they toss him a puzzle question. And according to him, his, his response was like, listen, you either like me or you don't like me, but I don't know how to do these puzzles. So we're just it's not like, <laughs> let's like save our time. And they ended up hiring him. Um, <laughs> but he he was somebody that was, you know, that in a way it was sort of the puzzle test became this like test of maybe how honest he was. I don't know. Okay. But it wasn't that everybody had to get it right, but it was definitely a part of the culture to ask them. And then what I found even more interesting is that the puzzles become a part of the company's weekly newsletter later. Uh, and that was really pretty cool to see. Let's talk about Elon, because um, I know many people are fascinated by him. Uh, Elon, back in his early days, worked as an intern at a bank. Uh, and I believe this was after kind of cold calling the CEO or something crazy. And the CEO recognized that he was incredibly clever. And then the internship was handed to him. Um, what would you say Elon was like as a, as a young person? Um, just before I give a, a follow up question. Yeah, and I'm trying to manage a a dog who I'm dog sitting bring, for. Bring him in. Bring want, him in. Seems to want to get on the interview as soon as you start talking about Elon. This dog is uh, <laughs> dog is taking the mic away from me. Um, so you have to forgive the you have to pardon the interruption. Um, so I had this amazing, you know. So I, I did get to interview Elon directly. So a lot of these answers to the questions and and various little nuggets about PayPal come from him directly. And I think it's one of the first times that, you know, like many years he had to go deep. He like made it, she sort of made fun of me for, for how, much, how interested I was in this um, in a gentle way, in a kind of like a very endearing way. Um, one of the people that he pointed me to was his first boss and one of his earliest mentors, somebody named Dr. Peter Nicholson. Hmm. And Peter Nicholson worked at Scotiabank. And so he, he, he had gotten this random outreach from this kid, Elon Musk, and he met Elon Musk and Kimball Musk, Elon's brother, and kind of like right away, it was like, okay, these two are really dynamic. He had one spot on his team. Elon took the spot. And it was for like an internship at, a, at Scotiabank. And Dr. Nicholson's in this interesting position of he's he's sort of um, a, a, a researcher within the bank. And he'll just like, like the CEO will ask him questions and then he'll go off and try to understand it uh, and try to find an answer. And so Elon's got an interesting vantage point into banking, but more, most importantly, he gets, a, he gets to spend time with Dr. Nicholson, who actually has a PhD. You know, he had done, he had worked on early computing stuff. He was really interested in physics, like all the things that Elon likes, this person, Dr. Nicholson also liked. So I got to talk to him. And you know, what I, I would say the long answer to your question is, one of the things that Dr. Nicholson said is, look, uh, he was very, very bright, uh, worked really, really hard, loved space. And, you know, would push the boundaries on what we could and couldn't do even at the bank. And Dr. Nicholson's like kind of thing was like, he's pretty much the same. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, he's he's kind of like a lot of the same interests, a lot of the same energy, the same big ambitions, et cetera. And obviously he's like had a lifetime's worth of experiences since then. But it was striking how much, you know, in a way, you know, the things that Elon is thinking about and passionate about in his early life, he 40 years later is still 
where I mean, like, it's like actually the most extraordinary thing that, yeah. you know, let's say you decided when you were 14 or 15, you were going to do this one thing. And then you just like did not let go of that passion. That's wow. exactly how in some ways he's lived his life. So that's one description of how he's lived his life. Right. Meaning when he's in uh, college, he's studying energy systems. He's studying physics. He's studying rockets. Uh, he's, you know, really passionate about space. And what do you know? These are the things that he ends up actually like making an impact on later. Um, so I would argue that that's actually like probably the, one of the best answers to your question is he's very much in some ways the same person. Okay. Um, obviously with a lot more seasoning and experience, he's done a bunch of different things. But even his mentor, who he was close to, said, you know, the Elon people see today to some degree like reflects the Elon that I knew, right? Big ambitions, big ideas, tons of energy. That is awesome. That, that's going to be so fascinating for people to hear. Um, I spoke about this with a friend recently, and we spoke about Elon's uh, internship experience. Would you say that this gave him the conviction, helped him come up with the idea for, um, for x.com and, and for PayPal down the line? Um, what, what, what do you think was kind of the, the, the formation of that of, a, of that experience and then translated over to to his companies because um it, when reading the book you can you can tell that there was a lack of innovation in the bank and that perhaps frustrated elon so would you say that the internship of the bank um really helped elon develop his business ideas i i think it contributed i don't think it's the whole thing um meaning i don't think it was like a eureka moment but let me let me describe it like this you know he proposes an idea at Scotiabank that is rejected because he wants the bank to take bigger risk with some of the loans that it could buy. Um, and the CEO does not want to follow Elon's advice. And, you know, I sort of go into the details of what it was about. It was about um, this thing called Brady Bonds and what whatnot. What the lesson Elon takes away from that is, is interesting. And here's how I would describe it now. It's sort of like being a little bit removed from the writing of it. You know, there are times when you have an experience and you discover like the emperor has no clothes, right? That actually like, oh, it turns out like, these, like a lot of these people don't know what they're talking about. And that can apply <laughs> in many different fields, right? Like you could sort of get exposure to something and realize like, oh, I thought there was like a, you know, the Wizard of Oz turns out to be just a guy with a big like curtain and a, and a bullhorn, right? Um, he had a similar experience at Scotiabank, which is you know, he, I think maybe rightly, like many of us had an impression of like, oh, these bankers like really know what they're doing. And they know, and then he proposes an idea that he thinks is sensible and the math works and they reject it. And his takeaway was bankers don't know how to take risks. Bankers don't know how to innovate. And the line in the book is, so thus anybody that enters the banking field can crush them. Right. <laughs> and so it contributes to the idea of X.com. But I would also say there's another part of it that is less well understood, which is, mm. His idea for X.com is actually to simplify finance by putting all of the disparate databases and products that banks and insurance companies and mortgage companies and everybody else, putting it all in one place in order to cut down on fees, cut down on friction. You know, his question, which again, like other people have asked, and there have been some answers to it is, you know, why do I need to separate like my brokerage account from my checking account or my savings from, you know, like a, a, a credit line I might have? If I could house them all in one place, it would just simplify the experience of banking. There are companies today that are, that are trying to make good on that vision. I think some of the uh, components of that vision echo throughout cryptocurrency. Um, but it's a it, it, there's a part of it that is that is deeply technical, which is, Okay, you, you have somebody in Elon who experiences Zip2 and he sees what the internet can do for something like, you know, advertising, yellow pages, that sort of market. 
And he's thinking like, well, what if the internet like could massively accelerate finance? That's the, that's one of the theses like is like, okay, what, what would happen if we just digitize finance? And he just wants to do it uh, on a bigger scale than anyone else. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, such, such amazing book. People that are listening, you need to read the book. It's just such good in insights into what, what the guys are like. Um, Elon did have kind of an existential crisis also during uh, college. I feel like uh, at least kind of my friends uh, at a younger age have kind of experienced something similar, especially the ones that are very conscientious um, and analytical of themselves. But what was this existential crisis about? Uh, and and what was Musk's conclusion? Because um, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And, and I think it, it kind of set the path for, for, for the shaping of the rest of his life. Yeah. So, it, you know, there's sort of like a couple of them. I think like a lot of us, we all go through uh, multiple existential crises during the during our Tell existence. Me. There's one that happens when he's younger in his teen, early teen years. And he kind of gets into this. And I actually didn't write that much about this, but I did a lot of research about it. And yeah. I think I spoke to him about it briefly. But the basic the basic thing was he started to like like get into this like kind of Nietzsche place of like, what does it all mean? What's it all for? Like, why are we here? What's the purpose of everything? And these like big questions for anybody to ask, let alone like a 14 yeah. or 15 year old. Right. And he starts to come around. He reads this book called the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And the conclusion that he takes from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is, well, those are really big uh, questions, but actually like asking the right questions is as important as finding the right answers. And so his view is, physics is one place that's asking like big important questions that are directionally right and so it motivates him to study physics and i kind of like kicked the tires on this and i sort of like looked at other things that he had written or said and it does square with kind of like the the relatively thin written record that's out there that actually like he has this crisis he reads all these books and it's like oh physics is a great place to start with questions about existence right so that's existential crisis number one I would say there's a there's a professional existential crisis number two, and that is the, the same one that a lot of us experience. He's at the tail end of college, and there are a few choices in front of him. He's gotten accepted to a Stanford graduate degree program. The internet is booming, so he could go off and do this startup thing, or he could try to join a company that already exists. And for a, through a variety of like uh, chance occurrences and other things that, and decisions that happen that are all covered in the book, he ends up doing a startup, and it changes his life. Right. Um, I'm not saying that it's like that's the thing that would have changed his life. I think he's he's ambitious and very energetic, and I'm sure he would have thrived in whatever space he went into. But he chose to start a company called Zip2. Hmm. He deferred graduate school for six months, and then eventually, obviously, like, didn't go back to grad school. Um, and he does not get accepted at a job at Netscape. Uh, so he interviews for this job, or he sends an application in, does not hear back. He's got a funny moment. He's standing in the lobby at Netscape trying to get somebody to talk to him. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it all kind of worked out. Zip2 ends up being a success. It's not quite the success he thought it would be. But he ends up starting on the path of startup entrepreneurship because of professional crisis number two, which happens when he's a senior in college. Yes. Uh, on the on topic of Zip2, um, like once again, when you look at Elon now, you, perhaps from first intuition, you'd, you'd get the idea that he's like an amazing manager. He's, he's great at human organization. He's 
um, a technologist. He's he, he's basically perfect at everything. But at Zip2, that, that very much wasn't the case. There was a lot of internal conflict, especially uh, towards the end of uh, Elon's time there. What can you tell us about, about the conflict um, between Elon and the guys at Zip2? And how did that kind of uh, end? So Zip2, you know, Zip2 is a small part of, of my book. And so I, I just want to add the disclaimer of like, it's not the place I went super deep in okay. understanding. I, I, you know, I spoke to him about it. I spoke to some of the people who worked there. I spoke to, some people, to one person who was at Zip2 and then moved to X.com in its early days. Um, but, you know, I think it's very it's interesting. It's like sort of mimics some of the conflicts that come later in the PayPal story. He had huge ambitions for Zip2. He wanted Zip2 to be Yahoo. He wanted Zip2 to be Google, right? He wanted it to be one of these like, portal sites that would be the place where people's internet journey would begin. And for a, for a variety of reasons, that's not where the business went. Um, he had investors who thought that they should have a particular focus on servicing media companies, essentially kind of becoming a, a service provider for, for media companies like the New York Times. Knight Ritter and the New York Times invest money into Zip2. Um, you know, so there's like this kind of thing that happens where like his line, he's great. He was really funny on this one. He said, you know, he's like, it's like we built this fighter jet and the way the media companies wanted to use it, meaning Zip2, the way they wanted to use Zip2 was like rolling it down the hill and smashing it into something, right? Um, but the, his view is there's still an opportunity to build, like he wanted Zip2 to be this big success. Other people in the leadership team and investors disagreed and they, it caused some drama. What changed it all was that Zip2 was acquired by Compaq. And so the drama was kind of put to rest, meaning it was acquired by Compaq, acquired by Compaq for around $308 million. And Elon obviously is a significant shareholder. He gets a big piece of that. And so there was this, oh, like we were struggling, you know, there were difference in, in big vision or in visions. But I would say that the, the thing I take away is there's nothing that there's no, you know, I think we have to, and Ashley Vance makes this commentary in his his book about Elon as well. Like, there is always a scale to his ambitions that is bigger than what you or I could like even in some ways understand, right? So, so it's not just that Zip2 is going to be a success financially. He wants it to change the internet. It's not just mm -hmm. that X.com is going to facilitate email payments. He wants it to change finance. It's not just that you're going to like build a service provider for NASA. No, we're going to get to Mars. You know, there's a sort of scale here that's worth yeah. sort of appreciating. And I think that's one of his defining characteristics. Um, it doesn't always make it easy to have a competing vision, but, you know, the answer to your question is sort of that was the, the source of the conflict, but the conflict kind of goes away. Now, admittedly, like Zip2 is not my area of focus. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, let's talk about PayPal then. Uh, PayPal, like, changed drastically over the course of kind of its its uh, its lifespan. I mean, you have videos now of Peter Thiel in his early days talking about basically um, a cryptocurrency replacement of the digital dollar. Um, what can you what, what can you tell everyone about uh, PayPal in the early days and how the the mission changed? Yeah, it's one of the most. Um, I mean, uh, for entrepreneurs who are listening to this, like it's one. Of, it should be very comforting if you've decided yeah. to blow up your business model several <laughs> times, right? Um, but it's, it's also something that's worth keeping in mind for any of us. You know, we know PayPal today and a lot of people use PayPal today or they use Venmo and it's like a money transfer service. When it started, it was two separate companies. On Max Levchin and Peter's, Peter Thiel's side of the company, you know, the original conception was actually this thing called Fieldlink. And the idea was to build mobile encryption libraries 
uh, and then to charge people for the use of those libraries. The first generation of mobile devices was out. They were pretty insecure. Max Levchin had some ideas about how he could be the person to bring security to mobile devices. And he's like, oh, like this is like a software as a service I could build or like, you know, a product that, that I could that we could rent out to companies that are in this space. On the X.com side, you know, Elon's original conception is to build relationships with banks to buy a bank at one point or kind of like have a great relationship with a bank where they're essentially being able to use the bank to release debit cards, have checking accounts, et cetera, and then to bring everything under one roof. So email money transfer is a part of that, but it's a very small part of that. So you have these two entities, X.com that's going to change finance and Fieldlink, which becomes Confinity and their core product, what Confinity goes out with, you know, it's sort of a, as a debut is money beaming between Palm Pilots. So the Palm Pilot in 1999 releases an infrared port in the corner of the device. And nobody can figure out what the point of this thing is. But Max Levchin and Peter Keel have a point. And the point is, we're going to use the infrared beams to do digital money transfer that's encrypted. So actual transfers of money. It's super nifty. The press loves it, but it doesn't really have like a functional use case. Yeah. And so you have this situation where like they have to very quickly shift their, their entire product vision. They build an email money companion service as a backup. And the email money companion service at Confinity and at X.com start to take off in a place called eBay. So eBay is though is sort of dominating then the online auction market, but they have not figured out a like, dedicated system for payments. That pain point was solved by PayPal. And I would say by both companies, meaning X.com and Confinity, eBay users swarm to these services and they essentially like use PayPal to get the end of the auction done. Like, how am I going to pay you if I buy something from you? Okay, let's just, I'll PayPal you the money. Failure is, uh, I would say, common kind of word that I was I was thinking about when it came to PayPal's early days. Um, specifically, they had a huge issue with fraud. Um, uh, specifically, I, th I think it's like after the product was was kind of getting some traction, they had a big issue with fraud with with fraud in which people were just making fake accounts, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, what were some of the, the the big challenges that that they faced as a team, and how did they overcome them? Yeah, fraud is one of the most interesting parts of this whole story because, and the whole journey, because without fraud, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing where I had a bunch of people say to me, basically, you know, if we hadn't experienced fraud, we wouldn't have had to fight fraud, right? And so, and, and, and what, what, what happened is the industry as a whole was, was in some ways you could describe it as sort of being scared of the internet because yeah. it was scared of the fraud that the internet would enable, but what PayPal did was it, it sort of took it on the chin, like they had a bunch of money lost to various, to, to forms of fraud of various sophistication, and then they fought back. And in fighting back, they developed fraud fighting tools, and that turns the company into, you know, one reason the company became successful. And so it's this incredible story of, and I would say that, you know, for people listening who are building kind of products and services, which is, you know, it's not a terrible sign in some ways if you're being defrauded because it means actually like your service is adding some fundamental value in the world. Now that value may be putting, maybe put to, to bad use or to, to some nefarious ends. But if you think about the following example, let's walk through a specific example. Here's the example. One of the challenges that PayPal has is the one you described. 
they were giving away $10 and $20 bonus payments for people who signed up, who were new. But all you really needed to sign up was an email address and like a first name and a last name, right? And you can kind of make them up. <laughs> and so we have a problem, which is, look, I can, I can even today you can create an email address within seconds and then make up a name, Joe Smith. And Joe Smith suddenly gets $10 richer. Repeat that hundreds of times and you're giving away $10 every time somebody signs up and you're not sure if they're a real person. The, the bigger problem came when that fictitious account creation process I just described became automated. And so you had bots that were generating hundreds, dozens, hundreds of accounts, wow. you know, automatically. So here's the big question, the big, you know, fraud fighting question. How do I know, Christian, that you are a real person or are you some computer with that with inputted, you know, Christian <laughs> at gmail.com with the first name Christian? How do I know what's real? How do I know it's not? One of the questions they have to ask themselves is what are computers like? What's a way we could test for that? Meaning, how can I subject you to a test to make sure that you're a human being and not a computer? So one of the things that Max Levchin and his team, which includes a young engineer named David Gausebeck, they have to ask them, like, what are computers, what, what's something that's easy for humans to do, but is really hard for computers to do? And th th what they came up with is OCR, optical character recognition. At the time, it's still really tough for computers to do optical character recognition. Some of the early yep. technologies being created, but it's not at any level of sophistication, nothing like today. So what they do is they take a series of newspaper clippings, put a bunch of lines over the newspaper clippings, like a headline, and you, have to, you the human, have to decipher the word that's behind those lines. Mm. Humans can do it. Computers can't. They introduce this test, and this test has a name. It's a name all of us know. It's the CAPTCHA. Yes. The CAPTCHA test wasn't invented at PayPal, but it was commercialized at PayPal, and it was scaled at PayPal. A year before David Gausebeck and Max Levchin built this test, something like that, Carnegie Mellon, there's some researchers at Carnegie Mellon that have done something similar, but they didn't put it on a website that had any kind of traffic, right? Okay. So just to be totally accurate, it's not that PayPal invented CAPTCHA, but Max Levchin and David Gausebeck essentially back into a CAPTCHA and then bring it to scale. So if anybody gets annoyed about having to like find a tree or a fire hydrant or identify a vehicle or a stoplight, like where that came from <laughs> properly understood is PayPal. And it's one of the things, though, that if you think about it, it does help to fight back against the automated account creation that's a part of this story. And by the way, it worked so well. One of the things that they described to me is they said, you know, we turned it on and we, they were in touch with some of the fraudsters and the fraudsters got so mad because it was so good that they couldn't use these computerized programs to keep generating auto generating accounts. Um, culture is something that I think about. And also just on that point, I mean, uh, perhaps there's a case to be made that that led to kind of the inception of, of Palantir, uh, Peter Till's kind of latest company. Maybe, maybe there's a link to be made there. I'm not entirely sure. Um, culture is something I think about a lot for business. Uh, I think it's, it's a real necessity. I'm reading, reading an amazing book now called Loon Shots. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, um, but it speaks about human organization, structure and culture as being a really good indications uh, for, for future success. What would you say the culture was like at, pay at PayPal? I mean, there's stories of people having, you know, in immense amounts of coffee, uh, staying up late into the night. Can you can you give us an idea of the culture? Yeah, I can. You know, it's it's. Um, I think I, something important to remember is like I don't. They weren't the kind of place where like somebody sat down and wrote out the values, right? And then like that was the culture. Nobody prescribed <laughs> the culture, right? The culture was built as a byproduct of the challenges they faced, the people who were there, and the time in history that they faced them, right? And so I just want to like make sure people understand like this is not a to-do list or a guide. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a it's a capture of what happened, yeah, right? Yeah. 
Um, it was an insanely hardworking place. That was true across almost all the interviews I did. I had a, a interview after interview where somebody was like, wow, I've never worked harder in my life. I'm not sure I could do that today. That kind of thing. Right. Um, I would say it was a place where there was a very limited sense of hierarchy, meaning junior level people who I interviewed felt like they, if they had a criticism of the boss or, or something they wanted to say, they didn't have to hesitate before saying it. Uh, Jeremy Stoppelman, who was the founder of Yelp, who was an early um, X.com employee hired by Elon. One of the things he said is, you know, it was sort of encouraged. Like I hear, he said, in some other place, he has said, like, I once like flamed an executive on an email thread, like in front of like, all the employees. And he's like, and it was sort of, I got pats on the back. Like, okay, great. Good on you. You call, you know, that's like, that's really good. We want that kind of thing here. So it was a place where like hierarchies were, I wouldn't say non-existent, but it, I got the impression from my interviews that if you were talented and, and you had something that you wanted to do, there was a place to let you do it. Um, I would say it wasn't the easiest place to work. Like there were a lot of shouting matches. There was a lot of strife, mm. but in a funny way, the thing I, that people played back to me was that the strife was rarely personal. Um, it was much more around like getting to the answer, getting to the truth, getting to the right ideas, et cetera. Um, and I, I, and that sort of final cultural piece is, and this is sort of just like a quirky, interesting thing. You know, the puzzle solving thing I described was in the air, right? Like it was sort of, there was an atmosphere of playing cards and playing chess and solving puzzles. And like the company newsletter has puzzles. And there was a kind of, just to call it like a, a kind of atmosphere of nerdiness, right? That was a part of the place. Like that was celebrated. Um, when I was interviewing these people, you know, they could still remember like the books that they were passing around, like Neil Stevenson's wow. Cryptonomicon, Lord of the Rings. There was a, a, a group outing, one rare group outing when they went to see the new Star Wars and immediately were repulsed by, you know, Jar Jar Banks <laughs> and the, the sort of, yeah. Uh, weren't we all? Um, so, so there was that, but there was a kind of nerdiness that I think you can't separate that from this story and you can't separate it from Silicon Valley. Uh, but that was a part of the culture. I would also argue, and this is the final thing I'll say about it, a ton of immigrants, you know, per sort of a yeah. level in particular, you have a lot of people who are new to America mm -hmm. and there's smarter people than me who have written longer books about immigration and entrepreneurship. Yeah. But I think one of the things that stood out is just how many of them were, you know, were first generation or came here from abroad um, and got swept up in the dot-com mania. There, there is an interesting correlation between uh, like immigrants and, and entrepreneurship, but I don't know exactly why, but it's it's a really interesting like kind of area to dive into. Uh, highly recommend you know, people. It, David, sure. David Sachs has this really powerful line at the end of the book. He says, immigration is the ultimate entrepreneurial act. Um, because what you're doing is now that's the quote, the, and he gives a little bit of an explanation. He says, you know, because you're forced to leave everything behind, like yeah. you are literally starting from scratch in most, yeah. in many cases. And his was the, the, I would say the, he nailed it on the head, but it was more than one person observed to me like, Oh, interesting. You know, how many of us like were had like, you know, grew up with accented English in the house or had parents mm. who like didn't quite know what we were doing because it was startups and nobody knew there, there was a kind of quality there that people yeah. would observe even in the aftermath. Yeah. It's that it's so interesting um, to like, think about I, I thought about that quite a lot, why that happens and what is the link there? What is the reason? Um, a final few questions in the last few minutes, there were some unconventional solutions at PayPal. Um, for example, one time they had uh, I believe an influx of, of, of messages, you know, from customer service and they can obviously reply to them in time. So they, rented out some office somewhere and hired family members and friends to kind of take care of the work. Um, what, what, what does that experience tell us about like PayPal? And, and can you just tell us a bit about the story there? 
Yeah, it's a great story. And it, the, the central character in that story is uh, Julie Anderson, who is this amazing, amazing early X.com hire. She's like employee number five at X.com. And, you know, it's a, it's a classic startup problem solving sort of <laughs> scenario. They're paying a lot of money for customer service that is not able to keep up with the massive volume of complaints that PayPal, that X.com and PayPal are enduring uh, while they're growing, right? Because basically, if you're dealing with somebody's money, it's really like people can get pretty tense about it. And so you have this situation where Julie Anderson, you know, has an idea. And even to this day, it's interesting. She says to me, she's like, you know, I can't actually like remember what prompted the idea, but I remember that as soon as I had the idea, I sort of just said it out loud. And what happened is she said, you know, I had all these friends and family who lived in the middle of the country in Nebraska, uh, specifically in and around Omaha. And it was her sister who she sort of said, you know, my sister was at home. She was very, very, very smart, college educated, spoke great English. You know, and I thought like, well, if she wants a little bit of work, she could do customer service for us. And I could essentially like outsource customer service, but we could build our own center. Elon, when she proposes the idea, essentially what I gather is, is he said, just go for it. Go make it happen. Do that. <laughs> and, and that's what she did. She went to Omaha. The center went from, you know, a handful of Julie Anderson and her sister's family and friends to almost 200 people in the course of, I think, 30 to 40 days. And to this day, PayPal is a huge employer in the greater Omaha area in Nebraska. But that story originates from Julie just having this sense of like, look, we're paying all these California firms. They're not doing the best job. How can we make this better? Let me come up with like a solution. And she just, she meditates on it in the book. She says, you know, when we were all working there, there was rarely, rarely did we ask like, will this work? It was more go try it. And then if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. And I think that's like the kind of thing that at this point has become sort of a startup cliche, yeah. but it's different when you hear the story of it happening and you think to yourself, wow, you built a 200 person call center in 30 days based on like yeah. an intuition about your family. That's amazing. Um, and I will say Omaha gave them an important solution at a time when the company really needed to get customer service right. And it becomes a big part of what makes PayPal successful because they were being, you know, they had customers complaining to the Better Business Bureau, to federal, various other, like various federal agencies. So it was a serious problem. I don't want to minimize just because the solution was a little bit spur of the moment and a little bit kind of like, where did it come from? We shouldn't minimize the scale of the problem. The problem was very real. There was a, actually, and to, to illustrate that, there was an angry customer that showed up to PayPal with a gun on his, oh, on his yeah. hip. And like, it was a really, this were serious people. You're dealing with people's money yep. and people's and people did not want you to mess around with their money. And they wanted better customer service than what the company was offering in its earliest days. I think one of the best things from this conversation and the book, um, and just one more final question before we wrap up, but the biggest takeaway and the one I think is, is most useful for people that are trying to build something, um, create a startup is, is often like, it, it's very much a, a combination of intelligence and a bit of madness and um, and just continually trying um, because this was by no means, as, as you've mentioned and reiterated, uh, a perfection job at, fr from the start. It was a lot of uh, unconventional solutions, a lot of intelligence and um, a, a lot of kind of just carry on, I suppose. Many people just carried on working really hard and finding solutions, whatever the problem was. Um, so that's a really important takeaway that I think people will, will appreciate. Final general question I'll give you. Um, what is your favorite story 
um, from the book that perhaps goes under the radar? Oh, wow. Um, that's a really tough one for me. I mean, like, you know, you sort of fall in love with all of the different stories you tell when you do a book like this. Like, it's hard to choose just one. Um, I'm trying to think of an under the radar one. You know, here, I, I'll, I'll offer one that, that stood out to me. In the in the later part of the book, I had the the opportunity to interview fraud fighters, like PayPal's like army of human fraud fighters, not the yeah. people who are writing code to fight fraud, but actually people who are like kind of like almost like detectives, like trying to figure out what who the bad actors were and what they were doing. And I would say that like there are very few scenes in the movie that come close to like, I don't know, like a Bond movie or something, but the fraud <laughs> fighting definitely does because you're trying to break up occasionally like criminal syndicates that are using PayPal to do bad things. And the, the fraud fighters are a mix of like, you know, they're like Perry Mason or like James Bond, you know, or like an FBI operative or something. You know, there's like all these like interesting the things they learn about money laundering, about gambling, about, you know, how the Secret Service works and how the federal government works and how terrorist financing works is all like I was just riveted by those stories because I think of PayPal in my like very narrow way of like, I need to send Christian $10. I can do that right now very easily. Right. But you don't actually think about like, oh, it's quite possible that there are members of Al Qaeda using this service to move money. And then mm. after 9-11, that became a much bigger issue. And, you know, there's also sort of like that, that part of it is something that's like, I think, hidden from a lot of us. But I remember interviewing the fraud fighters, a few of them, and just being amazed by their stories, because you have to be able to separate legitimate transactions that people are making from really like scary activity or kind of like, you know, money laundering. And that's really, really hard to do and it's hard to do well. So I would say that's sort of like the, the thing that I hope people like take away is like just how impressive the fraud fighting operation was at PayPal. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a, a pleasure to speak to you. And I hope, I hope I've asked you some uh, differentiated and, and unconventional questions. Uh, you, defi you definitely have. You definitely have. And like, it's what, this what is, is one of the things that made me think. <laughs> what, are, what are the questions you, you get like most often? Um. You know, I get asked, you can imagine, I get asked a lot yeah. about Elon and uh, about Peter and about the individuals. I get, yeah. I don't get asked as many questions that the way you did about like the business and the context, right? And so, uh, look, I, I get it. I wrote about people that other people want to know about. I understand. Yeah. I'm not stupid. But it's also important for people to remember that like there's much more to the PayPal story than just Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. Yeah that the book covers a 200 plus people who help make this company happen. And I'm glad that you asked about things like Omaha or about customer service or about fraud, because that's actually like what makes the company successful. It's not like two people in a garage who like assemble <laughs> this thing called PayPal. It is, a, it is 230 people in Palo yeah. Alto, 700 people in Omaha who created this thing. And that's like part of what I try to trying to do when I talk about it. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, everyone needs to read the book. I'll leave it down below in the description um, and I'll leave all your links down below, Twitter, et cetera. Thank you so much for coming on. It was a well, pleasure you, to, to speak great. to you. And, and thank good, you luck so much with, for me. good luck with the dog sitting. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I think I got through it okay. <laughs> good to speak awesome. to you. I'll, I'll see have you soon. Bye.